What up, fam? Welcome back to the business of DJing. Thank you again for tuning in. My name is Jamie Selects, your host. All right, today we have a super awesome episode. I'm excited to bring on my best friend in the world, Alon Hensley, aka Soul7. Um, not only is he a dope DJ, but he works in the music industry and is an absolute beast at his job. So we have a super wide-ranging conversation today, which I'm excited to share with you. Um, he has a master's in music business from the Berklee College of Music, and we go back all the way to our days at Pacific, uh, where we both graduated with um, bachelor's degrees in business with concentrations in arts entertainment, which is basically music business. So his knowledge in that area is super super profound, and so excited to share that with you. Uh, today we talk about everything from how he got gigs while he was out in Spain studying um, abroad all the way to how he built Empire Latino from the ground up. Empire is a record label from the Bay Area, if you're not familiar, where he's a senior product manager of Latin and also hip-hop. And then also he gives some tips to young artists who may be looking to get their first in with the label. And then also just for DJs out there, how you can maintain a professional image um, online and, and how you can help brand yourself. So super wide-ranging conversation. Thanks again to my boy Soul7 for coming on, and I'm excited to bring him to you right now. Let's go. Cool. What up? Welcome to another episode of The Business of DJing. It's your boy, Jamie Selects, your host. Thank you for tuning in today. We have a very special guest, my brother, my best friend, Soul7, Alon Hensley. Thank you so much for coming on, bro. What's up, man? What's up? Cool. Well, we got a lot of stuff to talk about today. Super stoked. A couple of things that I want to talk about. We're going to talk about the early get down days, feeling stuck and taking a leap of faith, uh, your experience at Berkeley College of Music. And then coming back, getting a real job that you don't really like, and then the transition over to working in the music industry at Empire. Um, and then anything else that, that comes up. So let's just flow. But thanks again for let's rock uh, it. coming on. No, thanks for having me. Cool. So let's uh, take it back to kind of early days. We both met in college, just in case the audience isn't aware. Um, but why don't you talk about where you're first introduced to your love of music, and then potentially your your uh, first intro to DJing as well. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, most human beings. <laughs> oh, we got a guest appearance here. I think most human beings probably have pretty early recollection of their their love for music. I think my earliest one was definitely when I first moved to the United States. Me and my brother got this cool little electronic keyboard when I lived in Modesto in an apartment and. Um, their keyboard could like record those short tidbits of whatever you played or even sound bites. And we just rock out trying to make a song for my mom before she got home in our closet. That's probably my earliest memory of music in my life that I like was like really into it. But I think when I really fell in love with it was probably in, in elementary school. I had a best friend who was super into music. You know, he introduced me to Linkin Park. He introduced me to Blink-182. And it was honestly through that best friend that I kind of like fell in love with music as a whole, especially Linkin Park, you know, just because of that experience they're, they're now my favorite band. Um, I do remember one particular time where I like, it really like clicked that I just had to know more about music was we, I went to like a, I think it was third grade or second grade, maybe even fourth grade, can't even remember. But one of my best friends, she was having a birthday party um, and we went to her birthday party at her dad's house in Sacramento. And her dad was like super, uh, for the lack of a better word, like traditional straight edge kind of. 
and he worked in pop music. He's a vocal coach. And it was like gospel and pop music. And I remember at her party, we were all in the garage. You know, everyone's having a good time. And then my friend Drew, the one who introduced me to, to Lincoln Park and everything, he actually brought in his own CD and he played uh, Lincoln Park Hybrid Theory. He put it on the thing. And if, you know, if y'all know, like the first song on that album is Paper Cut. It's a pretty hardcore, low-key screamo song. And I heard that and it just like instantly captivated me. And her dad came rushing in and like turned it off. And he's like, yo, we don't listen to this. This is devil's music. And I just remember being like, what was that? I need to listen to that. That was probably like the earliest I remember just really being captured by, by music. I have a good Lincoln Park moment in the car with my dad as well. Um, <laughs> okay, cool. So then you, uh, how, how did you end up finding, so for the audience, we both went to University of Pacific together, studied music business. Uh, or arts and entertainment concentration at Pacific. Do you remember how you found that program and what made you want to go to Pacific to study music business? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I, then I wasn't sure if music business was exactly where I wanted to go. I know there was always an interest for me. Um, in, in high school, my parents got me a computer that had GarageBand. And so I was starting to already mess around with beats and stuff. And I knew that was a really cool place to look into. I also, that was around the time MTV Thres got launched. And so like, then I didn't have cable TV and all we did was terrestrial. And so like, I got that channel at my parents' house and I was really kind of interested. I'm like, holy shit, there's like a whole business behind music. I didn't even know this was a thing. And then the more I researched about music and I learned that you can actually make a career of it. And University of the Pacific was one of the few schools on the West coast that actually had a music business program. Like I knew I knew, I knew I wanted to work in business and I, the fact that they had a music business program kind of made me lean towards there. It wasn't my top school, I'll be straight up. It was a, it actually, believe it or not, it was the second to, it was the only one of two schools that accepted me. <laughs> so. Very honest for the pod here. <laughs> yeah, very honest for the pod. And, uh, the beginnings. and I was like, okay, well, this is really cool. I knew I was going to go for business. So I did it. And then, um, it, you know, eventually when I went to orientation, I got introduced to some people in the music business program, Phil, remember Phil? I introduced to, he was him in our orientation and he told us about the music business program. I'm like, oh shit, I didn't even know that it was like that comprehensive. And so that's kind of really how I started to pursue that, that aspect of it at, at UOP. And that's kind of how I ended up at UOP. Wasn't probably my top choice. It was one of my choices. It was either between UOP or UC Merced. And Merced was brand spanking new and there was nothing there. So I wasn't about to gonna go to the middle of nowhere. So UOP ended up being the, the move. Yeah, I feel you. It was, no, it was not my top school either, but uh. I remember just my dad was in music and seeing that they had a music business program. I kind of thought the same thing went through the same process of like, oh, I could be in music, but also be on the business side and kind of combine both of my interests there. Uh, okay, cool. So we're both at Pacific. Uh, we, we joined the same fraternity. We end up in the same job, the arts and entertainment, um, arts and entertainment team. And then if I recall correctly, you became the music bro uh, in the in the fraternity as well. And is that where was the first time that you decided to get a DJ controller? When we were um, in together? It was kind. It was kind of like twofold because there was a. So we were in Sigma Chi for the, for the the listeners to this. We were in Sigma Chi, in and and in Sigma Chi they had uh, every brother had essentially like, like a title, so like they were in charge of something. Um, one of the bros that brought me in was his name was is Kaku DJ Kaku actually who's he's a pretty prominent DJ in in, in Asia now. 
um, he was the, the music bro. And then he eventually formed that to be the DJ bro. So he was in charge of bringing the music to every party and like making the place and everything like that. He kind of took me under his wing and showed me kind of some stuff about DJing. But it was compounded with the job we had, which is the arts and entertainment program. When um, uh, I think it was our sophomore year, we were doing the freshman orientation. And remember Arlene, who was then our boss at the time, her husband worked at Apple. He introduced us to this brand new program that um, Apple was working in conjunction with this company called Algorithm that put out, it's called DJ. They made DJing, mixing tracks really simple and virtual on a computer without needing a controller. So I got really into that and I thought it was really cool. And then um, I got that program from him and started kind of messing with it. And I learned it had a DJ controller that matched up with it. It's called the Vestac Spin, which is why I was taking the real back. And um, that Vestac Spin, I ended up getting that. Um, I think I got it for Christmas and that really kind of like fully opened the door to the DJ world for me. And that was, that was probably around, so that would have been soft, middle of sophomore year. So I was uh, 19 going on 20. Okay, nice. Yeah, I remember DJing one of the freshman orientations. This was like long before I DJed. I just was playing tunes on Spotify. This one girl comes up to me. She's like, oh, you're a really good DJ. And I was like, no. <laughs> 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 you are wrong about that. Uh, times have changed. Okay, cool. DJ so press play. That's kind of the uh, the intro there. What I really want to get into is um, post-graduation, before I kind of got involved with Plural Music, you, the Pearl Music's the team that we uh, used to book for college, and you see where Alan wearing the shirt right here. If you're watching on the video, throw, throw back, our, throw back logo. Our company now, uh, they put on these events called the Get Down. So, can you describe what the Get Downs were and kind of what our what the team vibe was at the time and the whole vision behind what what they were trying to build at the time in Stockton? Yeah, so you kind of got to go back a little bit to get to the Pearl Music but I'll make it real quick. So throughout college, ended up getting really into DJing, became the DJ bro for our fraternity. So I was DJing parties and stuff. And I was doing it very much as a hobby at that time, by no means taking it seriously. And, um, you know, I did have like a little residency at like a super small club in Stockton called 856. Wasn't very cool, hardly ever popping, but it was still a good int introduction to it. And it was weird because at this club, I couldn't play hip hop. And that, at the time, that's what I knew best. I barely knew anything about dance music. And I really wasn't into that pop. I was super hip hop head and I couldn't play hip hop there. So I started getting introduced to like, I don't know, funk, some electronic shit, like Bob Sinclair. This is kind of one of my first intros to, to dance music. And this, is, this will come relevant here, trust. Anyways, thanks for that, Roxy. Um, anyways, um, doing that throughout my college career graduate and once after I graduate I didn't immediately pursue music business uh at the time I had like a lot of people talking in my ear and my brother kind of convinced me that it was going to be kind of a waste of money and time it's hard to make it in music so I'm like dude you're right let me just try and get into digital marketing try to do I got a digital marketing job for a not a very fun company and I was doing that for a while what ended up happening was around the middle of 2013 summer some acquaintances, some, some acquaintances from UOP, um, our, our homies now, some of my best friends, Marcellus and, and Joe Q, they had hit me up because they were going to throw this like little party in this uh, abandoned parking lot that they found in downtown Stockton. And they wanted to know if I DJ. They knew I DJed and they needed some more local people. And they're like, yeah, sure. So essentially the whole premise of this party was they were getting sick and tired of all the clubs in Stockton at the time did not support hip hop. 
They didn't want people spinning hip hop. They thought it brought a lot of problems, a lot of passive aggressive undertones with that. And, you know, we kind of just got sick of being told what to play. So they ended up wanting to throw this party so we can spin whatever we want. So I pulled up mm -hmm. to this party and it ends up being pretty successful. Our being our first party ever, I think like, like a hundred people came through to like this abandoned garage. And at that point we're like, yo, this is pretty dope. And, um, we ended up, you know, wanting to do it again. And that's kind of the premise of what Plo Music ended up becoming with these events was we, we called that one the summer get down. And it was allowed, we were allowed to play whatever we want. Every DJ brought their own flavor. And it was really cool because we never were able to do that. And so by the time um, this, the next month came in, we're like, dude, let's do that again. That was so much fun. So we did summer get down too. And then at that point, even more people came. I think like 150, 200 people came to that one. And then we're like, we're onto something. And at that point, we decided to start this series of events called the Get Downs. And it really culminated with the third one we did, which is this Hall Hall Halloween one we did in downtown Stockton. We rented out this abandoned bank parking lot. And we put up these fences, built a little stage. Our homie who worked at Red Bull got us to have the Red Bull truck come out. And that was like kind of like the main stage piece. And um, we were, the fire marshal gave us 500 capacity at the space he had put together. Mm -hmm. By the end of that night, the line was out the door. I think our estimate was like 750 people must have tried and been coming through on that party. And that's when we were like, oh snap, we might be onto something. And at that point we sat down, we rebranded everything, we packaged it up and we created the get down, the logo and everything and created this series where we were kind of made this concept of it's DJ based concert, but we, the DJs were bringing in live performers to perform with them. So it would be like a DJ and a drummer, DJ and a guitar player, DJ and a saxophone, DJ and a vocalist. It was kind of like that. And that's really kind of how it started. That following summer, the beginning of that year, we ended up doing a series at the Empire Theater in Stockton where we had like, a, I would call it a residency. We had three events we did in a row for the get downs. And that really kind of spurred our event production chops really. And I think it was probably, I think around the fourth one where we did in Santa Rosa where you kind of came in. And since then it kind of like all our collective minds kind of like really blossomed this whole idea. Yeah, the Rose Town get down. Yeah, so let's uh, let's touch on the the branding part for a second and see what um we can tease out for DJs trying to put on their own event. So, can you go maybe go a little bit deeper into? Okay, so we did the first event, it went pretty well. We did another event. Okay, we might be onto something, and then, boom, we get to the groups from Get Down have like eight hundred people there. Like, how do we, how did you wrap this all, especially being from the digital marketing side? I know you were pretty heavily involved in that. Um, what was the marketing process like? And how did the meetings go in terms of like, okay, how are we going to package this event and how are we going to brand it um, and like market it to people coming? I mean, I think when you're creating a business, especially a brand that's going to be marketed to a new, to a new area it's important to understand where your marketplace fit is, right? For us, we had quickly identified that there was a lack of these type of events happening in Stockton, California. At that time, the only place you could really go to music events was full on blown concerts at like the, at, at the Bob Hope Theater or small club events. And at the club events, as I mentioned to you, they weren't letting people play hip hop then. They were scared that things were gonna get too rowdy and whatever. Um, 
And so we had identified like, oh, there's a, there's a demand here. And so from that demand, from doing the first two events, we kind of like realized, okay, so we know we're going to do DJ based events. And by the, by the Halloween one, we knew we wanted to include some live acts from around the area. And so from that point, we kind of like started to identify our marketplace fit is like, okay, we're going to be a live event. That's not too big. It's affordable, but it's, it, it's letting DJs play whatever they want. It's not super genre specific. It's just dance music, not in the sense of electronic music, but music that makes you dance. And um, from that point, we knew what we wanted to do. Now, a lot of us came from a business background. So we knew we had to do a lot more than just, hey, this party's happening and just do word of mouth. Because really up until that point, most of this had been word of mouth. And this was also at the same time that we were, um, we were about to get really into social media as a society. Like Instagram had just rolled out. Snapchat was just starting. Facebook was kind of the name of the game at the moment. And we knew we needed to start building Facebook the brand events. out. <laughs> Yeah, Facebook events, for real. <laughs> Those were the shit back in the day. And we quickly identified, okay, we need a brand that's recognizable. Well, we knew that the summer get-downs had already had recognition because people started asking us, like, when are we going to have the next one? So we knew the get-down name was something we want to roll with. And then, I mean, we also paired up with this local digital marketing agency called Frankenmuffin that also helped us kind of, like, get our brand identity whittled down. And... um we also created a brand page. So created an Instagram for the company and we created a Facebook for the company and started sharing content on there that helped people understand what is the get downs. Uh, so first thing we did was we identified our market fit. The second thing is we identified the tools we needed to create to start putting out the marketing. And then we also needed to identify what the, what is the brand in terms of like, what is the about me of the brand? So we, we talked about being like DJ based concerts where all genres are welcome and people are able to come and dance for a very competitive and like very inexpensive fee, um, entrance fee. And so that really became our brand and we came up with the, the get downs name. Now, when we started marketing the last, the third event that really kind of took it to the next level up until then, we were just doing posts on our social media, just getting the word mouth out, making a Facebook event. That was the first time we tried doing paid media. So then it was paid media. wasn't really built out yet on Facebook. They hadn't gotten into like the super analytical targeting anything, but what did was YouTube. So what really crushed it for us was we did a YouTube campaign. We had created like this really fun trailer with some of our homies from college that was a, so the, 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 last, the third event we did was a Halloween event. So we called it the gruesome get down and we created this like kind of like scary type trailer. And um, we had our friends doing that. We used that as like the content piece to push the, the narrative of this event of what it was going to be, what it was going to look like. And when we took, we took that trailer we made and then we did, we ran ads using that only in, only in, um, in Stockton. Ads then were kind of expensive. So we ended up dropping, I think it was like $250. And that ad went crazy. Cause at the time people weren't really doing this yet in, on, on YouTube, mm-hmm. that ad went crazy. And it actually kind of got out of hand. That's actually how the groups of get down party got out of hand that YouTube ad got served to like everybody. Cause if you, Stockton's not very big. So if you serve, $250 worth in like a week of YouTube ads to Stockton, it's likely going to be served to a lot of different people. And we were able to hit the right people. And that's kind of how the word got out was that paid ad media that we did and an investment in the trailer um, for the event. And that's really how that made that, that last event pop popping, you know? 
Right. I remember we were doing the videos. We even did that for the uh, the groups some get down. One thing we had, I just wanted to bring up for the audience uh, in terms of how those things worked really well is we had the street team. So we had a bunch of people oh, whose job that, yeah. was basically to go uh, sell tickets on our behalf. And then they, we would give them, I, th- I don't know, I forget what the uh, the amount was, but if this ticket was $10, we give them $3 of the ticket and then we would keep seven. So basically it's like almost like influencer marketing in person <laughs> is, is how it worked out. Um, for real yeah that's right because i remember our boy raj was one of our best sellers because he just knew a lot of raj. people he yeah would, he, he would yeah. be a best seller for sure he, he, had, he had a cold mouthpiece and he was able to you know really talk to people the other part too was a marketing strategy which was unintentional but now that i think about it, it was it was genius on our part was we had extended the hours of the event so before we were probably doing like eight to eleven i think eight to twelve mm-hmm. we extended it to be a daytime thing and i think we did from like six to twelve and so what that extension did is it allowed us to fit in more acts. And what we did is we fitted more live acts from the beginning of the night, and then we faded into DJ night. And so what that did is we, we gave more people an incentive to promote the event. More people were involved, the network spread, the word of mouth was larger, the, the social network reach was, was bigger because more people were involved. It's not always gonna work for an event because some events might be too short or the format might not work, but for that particular one, it was the right thing at the right, at the right moment. Right. Especially if you can get people in at the beginning, it's always the hardest part to get their people at the beginning. So if you can get like the opening acts to bring their homies out, uh, then it's going to fill out earlier in the night. Um, yeah. Well, thanks for uh, bringing me on. It kind of sparked my entire journey. I remember watching you help out and I was like, man, I'm trying to come too. shit. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, I was able to do the groups some get down plan that with my brother, Kyle, and you guys all came up for that. And that was super dope. Um, cool. Yeah. Well, I wanted to touch on, you, you kind of mentioned it earlier, working for like a digital marketer for this, what was like a sleep apnea company. So I just, I, yeah, wanted, to, I wanted to touch on that a bit because obviously, or uh, not obvious for everybody, but we were pretty high performers in, in, call, in uh, school. You were the student body president. I was a commissioner. So in college, we were kind of killing it. And then when you graduate, you get level set back to zero <laughs> and you ain't shit. Pretty much. You're out there trying to get a job, you're going to take whatever. So I remember you were kind of in this position where you're like, man, I can't really find much of something I'm looking for, especially being in Stockton. Uh, to me, it felt like you felt kind of stuck. So I'm wondering if you can describe what that moment in your life was like and then how that led to looking for new opportunities and then how that eventually led to Berkeley. Yeah, so then, as you mentioned, we were really super involved on the on-campus activities at UOP. And because of that, I didn't really spend much time thinking about what happens after UOP. And I think, you know, I think it was a worthwhile investment. I learned a lot by doing that, but I think maybe in hindsight, I could have spent more time thinking about what happens after. But because I didn't, once graduation hit and, you know, the dust settled, I realized like I didn't really have anything set up for after, you know, after being in college. And so I took one of the first jobs I had available to myself, which was this company through actually who was then my dentist. He started this sleep apnea company, which essentially was trying to market medical devices to combat sleep apnea. I knew digital marketing because that was kind of my, my, my major's concentration was marketing and the business school. And so he brought me on and it was a work from home job, which, you know, then now is, is 
a pretty common thing. Wasn't but back thing. then, we <laughs> was not a thing. Was then. not a thing, and not only that, we did not have very many good tools based upon it. I think I used um, Go Meet, Go To Meeting. Remember that? Mm. No. <laughs> that you don't sounds, remember that one? Sounds terrible. You probably recognize the logo if you saw it. But yeah, Go To Meeting was what we were using. Anyways, I had to work from home. My roommate at the time worked out of the house. So he, he was leaving every day and I quickly did not like that. I was alone most of the day. I hated the job and I could not see myself work this past a year. Like for real, it was, it was bad. Um, wait, wait, so you're I got being alone of, all day working at home is not the business. No, not at all. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead. And, uh, I kind of got into a funk to be real. I was kind of bummed out. I wasn't very motivated. What I noticed though, I was spending way more time on not only learning how to DJ and get better at it, but these events that I was doing with plural music, the get downs. And I, and I remember that one point I was do, working way more during the day on these events than I was my actual job. Thankfully there was no one like monitoring me. So like I, you know, didn't get in trouble from that, but it was very obvious that this is not what I was trying to do, the, the digital marketing for the, the company. And I was trying to do more of like this event um, production stuff. And that was kind of like a big wake up for me. I'm like, okay, I'm obviously doing this way more because I'm way more passionate about it. So let's try and figure out a way to do this. And I remember one day I was just literally on my computer in my room and I, I shit you not, I just Googled top graduate business schools. And I think it was like the first two were like very not realistic ones. It was like, it was, um, I think it was like Juilliard. And then I think like Oxford and I'm like, okay, I know for a fact I can't get into those because they're like performance-based schools. And I right. was not good at performance at any particular instrument at the time, unless they were going to let me do DJing, which probably now they would now, but then they were not. And, um, the third one on the list was Berkeley College of Music. And so I looked that up and it just so happens that Berkeley College of Music had just opened up a sister school in Valencia, Spain that had a concentration, uh, a master's program in music, global music business. And so I looked that up. I looked at what it needed to be entering it and I, I applied. And um, now we're gonna get to the leap of faith part I know you wanted to talk about. So. At the same time, I wasn't still 100% that this was going to be something I wanted to do. So I hedged my bet. At the, throughout my time at UOP, I was involved a lot with student affairs and just how the internal kind of engine of an administrative building for a college university works. Kind of fell in love with it because I really liked being able to help my peers and people my age. And um, that was another career path I identify like maybe this is a direction I could go so while I applied to Berkeley College of Music I also applied to the student affairs program graduate program at UOP and um, being you know as the president of the student body I knew I had connections there that I knew like I could probably get a lot of information from the people who work there to kind of put, put me in a good position to potentially get accepted to this student affairs program so I ended up getting accepted to the student affairs program and I get that notification way before I even hear back from Berkeley. I think the student affairs program told me like the middle of May, but Berkeley wasn't supposed to hit me back to like the beginning of June. So I get the, uh, I get the offer letter from university specific student affairs graduate program. And on there, it says I have to reply by May 30th. I'm not supposed to hear back from, um, Berkeley College of Music to like, I think it's like June 6th or something like that. Mm. So I was sitting in my room on my computer looking at this offer letter and being like, shit, 
I kind of want to do this, but I really want to do this music business stuff way more. And I, it was a, it was literally a moment of truth. Uh, I, I was a, a big leap of faith moment because I was sitting there and I'm like, if I accept this, I have to pay like a fat deposit in. And like, if I don't go to school, I end up like losing that money. Mind you, we're fresh out college. We ain't really, you know, I, I ain't really got the, got it like that at the moment. And I, I'm not proud of this, but like I, in my mind, I was definitely like, okay, let me say, if I don't accept this at, at, at University of Pacific, I felt like with my connections I had in the school, I could have maybe figured out a way to still get accepted after the fact. Mm-hmm. So I denied the, I, I declined the offer letter to get into UOP's graduate program. And I pretty much rolled the dice on Berkeley. And I said, I told myself, if I get accepted into Berkeley, I'm supposed to do music. That is supposed to be my career. And if I don't, then I will find a job doing digital marketing for like a tech company or something. So I rolled the dice, I declined it. And it was like a crazy ass moment for me. And then I think I ended up hearing back on June 4th. And I remember this particularly because my birthday was, Ju- my birthday is June 3rd. And we, me no. and my roommate went out the night before and, you know, had, had, a, few, had a few drinks. <laughs> and um, I remember waking up pretty late on the 4th, opening up my email, not feeling too great. And I saw the, the, the letter came in from Berkeley. And I got accepted and I jumped out of bed and I started like screaming. I'm like, no fucking way. This fucking actually worked. And I got, and I got accepted. I got accepted to the school and I'm like, damn, no way. And so like, that's kind of how I ended up going to Berkeley. Uh, I accepted it. I started to make my plans. I told my parents like, yo, I'm about to move to Spain. And then like, sure enough, a couple of months later, come the end of July, I'm packing up my things in California and moving all the way to Valencia, Spain to attend the school nice some things work out that way cool so then once you're there you're in like the music business uh program obviously and there's also like people who are masters of their craft in music yeah for sure what was it like working with people at that level in the industry on the music side what did you learn from them i think for me I mean, shout out to ULP and shout out to our program director of the music business school, uh, you know, Professor Keith Hatchett, because he he really had a had me prepared. Like the classes were dumb hard at ULP. Like people think music business, and they think it's just listening to music and like talking about marketing rollouts. Like, nah, he made that really intense, intense um, research programs, and because of that, I ended up feeling like I was very well prepared compared to even the peers at at Berkeley to, you know, tackle a lot of the, the school assignments and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but really what uh, Berkeley, my time there did was it kind of compounded my belief that you can make a career of this. Cause I was meeting people who were actually doing it. Cause up until this point, I had never really met anyone who had a full on career in music business. I'd only heard about things. I'd only read in magazines, Rolling Stones and Billboard about people who made a career, but not at, at, at Berkeley. They did a great job of every other week they were bringing in someone to talk to our business class from who had, you know, respectable positions at a music company. I remember we talked to Benji Rogers, who at the time worked at Spotify. And so I'm like, oh, this is crazy. 
we talked to Rob Dickens, who, you know, for those who don't know, Rob Dickens is, is uh, you know, very prolific A&R. He was one of the people who founded, he was part of the team that found Adele. Um, mm. So, I, you know, I got to do some meetings and some in-class, you know, sessions with, with these very prominent people. So I, I, what really, Berkeley really did was show me how to get there and what is the possibilities that are out there. Because the other part of it, too, is people don't realize in music business, there's a ton of things you can do ton of things you can do things that are really close to the music creation process you can do things that are very far from it like royalty accounting but there's a ton of positions you can do and berkeley kind of showed me that and the other part too was just being constantly surrounded and talking about music business oftentimes i get students or even people who are trying to get into music business ask what to do and and one of my biggest you know pieces of advice i always tell everyone is like live and breathe it if you want to be in music business read about it every day what I did was on my Instagram, Facebook, and, and Twitter, I unfollowed everything that didn't have to do with music business. I followed my favorite artists, my favorite music labels, Billboard, Rolling Stone, Hits Daily Double, everything. And that's the only thing I consumed on my social media. And that, that's all I did. I read about it. I learned about it, all the trends that were happening at the time. Because I figured if, if I can at least know what's going on right now, I can have a conversation with pretty much anyone in the music business about what's, what they're doing right now. And, you know, my idea was like, if I know what's happening and I can have these conversations, then maybe that leads me to making an impression on this person, getting their contact info. And then maybe down the road, I can get a referral or even a job um, from just knowing what's going on in music business. And being at Berkeley, you're talking about music business all the time. You're talking about music in general all the time. Because, you know, at Berkeley Valencia was also performance and production school there. And right. that's kind of what really did it for me. It just it allowed me to be fully immersed in it and just really live, breathe and just sleep music business. Nice. That's kind of how it was uh, super dope and plural. When we had the HQ in Oakland, we're just all together all the time. So to bring it back to uh, the lesson for DJs kind of, I think it's talks to the importance of having other DJ friends that if you don't have a DJ group chat, you got to find one. <laughs> that way you can always, always be talking shop uh you know talking about the latest hardware latest software what's what's hot in the club what's not things like that so i think that's a cool lesson that um djs can take specifically uh but yeah that yeah, makes a lot sure. of sense did you have like a a favorites before we move on from um to kind of the dj time you had in spain any favorite people that came to speak anyone that stands out to you yeah, I do. I remember one in particular, he was really dynamic, Marty Frascogna, who is a prominent uh, music business lawyer, entertainment lawyer. He came through and, you know, he, he, he was very relatable because he was younger. He kind of, he was a lot more hip, you know, Rob Dickens was old, hella old. So like some of his takes were like a little outdated. <laughs> Benji Roger was, was cool because he worked at Spotify. So he kind of had that allure there, but like Marty understood how to talk to us. And he stood out to me because he was, he kept it super real. Like he, he talked very candid about how music business works and how stuff works. And he, you know, he also introduces some, some really cool shit before it popped off. Like he was representing 21 pilots, like three years before they blew up crazy. He told us about Haley and, and Chloe Bailey before anyone even knew who they were when they were like 13, 14. He's like, watch these people got, these two girls got co-signed by Beyonce they're going to blow up. And, you know, he was, he was right. They ended up blowing up. So like Marty for show was one of the people who really stood out to me. Um, yeah, he, he was, he was definitely one of them. Nice. Okay. So while you're in Spain, you're also, uh, 
you know, being a DJ, you, you brought it over there. Can you talk a little bit about how you were able to get your first DJ gigs out in Spain? Yeah, that was definitely something that was quite a tall task when I first got there. Like I came in very much branding myself as a DJ centered kind of person. So like, that's why I want to DJ and everything like that. And because of that, you know, I actually met a couple other people who also DJ. There was like two or three, one of my roommates actually was a DJ and uh, I kind of like hit it off with him. And through him, I, I was introduced to this other, my other friend, um, Kareem, AKA Tony Clark, shout out Tony Clark out in Boston and the East coast. He, he was someone that was already, um, he had, his, he was actually already there and, and knew a lot of people at Berkeley. Um, so he had already made connections in Valencia, Spain. And so through my friendship, through my roommate, Ian, and then Tony, um, we ended up getting connected to one of the promoters who was pretty prominent. He, he, his name was JC. He, uh, was the head of this really popular, it was a very popular club in Spain. It's called Erasmus, which is essentially means that it was, it was a club catered to all the foreign exchange students, which foreign exchange students at that time and people from the UK and the U S so he was the head of this club called rumbo 144 and they were known for their Wednesday party. So all the Erasmus parties, so all the exchange student parties happen on Wednesday nights in Spain. And so, you know, I get introduced to, to, to JC. I went to a couple events, showed face there at the events supporting my boy, Tony, who was already um, getting, you know, booked there. And then eventually we had, a day where like we showed up enough and talked to JC enough. He, he gave us a tryout. So one day we, we came into the club and it was after it was, it was not during opening hours. And we just kind of like spun 15 minute sets for him. And he's like, all right, your first date's going to be such and such. Then from then I started to get introduced to even more people as I was more around the club, the club scene, got introduced to, to another boy, my other boy named, um, I think his name was Oscar he started showing me to some other people. And then from there, it kind of just all snowballed. So really you just need kind of like an entry point. For me, it was my boy who was already been in, in Valencia, Spain. So he knew a couple of people. He was able to introduce me. Um, but really, I also came correct. You know, I, I didn't come like not knowing what the, what, what they were looking for to spin. I'd gone a couple of times to the club. I knew what they were looking for. And I know my, my skills were good enough to be able to carry me to a point where I was able to get a gig. Um, you know, that also, and I was able to speak their language, like literally I, I spoke Spanish. I think that right. probably helped me a lot. So like, sure. I understood what, what the crowd wanted. And I think a big part to for me too, was there's a few DJs from my, from my squad that couldn't make the cut because they only knew one genre. One of the benefits mm -hmm. that I had having grown up in Stockton and like all the different, you know, backgrounds that live there is like, I learned how to DJ pretty much every genre from the jump. So I wasn't a one trick DJ. Like I didn't just do house. I didn't do just hip hop. I was able to spin everything. And I think that helped a lot. Cause like whatever JC wanted me to spin, cause every night was themed, whatever he wanted me to spin, I was able to spin. And it, and it was never like an issue for me. Right. Right. Nice. Well, I like how you brought up, uh, you know, pulling up to the club first and talked about that only a couple of times in the podcast. Number one rule of networking and doing anything as a DJ got to show up so whether it's you want to get a dj or you want to get booked at a venue show up to the venue before you ask for anything just go out <laughs> not that hard go party uh but nice that's cool um so also in spain we went on a trip to ibiza 
How did we mm-hmm. we got connected with that through Joe, right? What was the uh, what was the play there? Yeah, so we were pretty. Uh, I would say we're we're pretty fortunate because our homie and business partner on Plural Music had during his his time in college, he actually did a foreign exchange program where he went from the U.S. to Spain for I think it was a whole semester. And while he was out there, Joe was actually one of the people who helped me learn how to spin vinyl. And, um, you know, shout out, shout out Joe Q, AKA Select a Cure. Um, he had already met a couple of people out there. And one of the people he met out there was this, was, was this group that had this, uh, like, it was like, um, I mean, what would you call this? It was like a, like a spring break destination. Company. It was like a destination trip company. And what they did is they did spring break trips to Ibiza for all the exchange students. So they would organize everything from, you know, where you needed to meet to tickets to locking in venues where you would go and party at and like hotels where you'd stay at. And so they had done all this stuff and Joe had spun for them. And, you know, if you guys don't know, Kier, he, he's an excellent DJ. So like he quickly impressed them. And so when Joe came back, and he knew I was going over there. He had connected me with these people and, um, you know, him knowing that I, I, he had confidence in my digital, but he introduced me to them and I connected with them and they were like, yo, we need a DJ to come for our trip. Um, someone that can actually know what the Americans want to spin. And I'm like, yo, I'm your, I'm your guy. And they ended up letting me booking me for this trip. And so I ended up being able to go to this, uh, Ibiza trip where I was kind of like the resident DJ for this traveling company. And I was able to spin out of these different locations that we were at and it worked out really well. I mean, through that, I learned, I got a lot of connections in that. And that's how we ended up getting connected to this group, which, you know, if you fast forward a little bit, we ended up coming back to Spain and did a whole tour with them in Ibiza. Nice. Yeah. That was super fun. We turned into like a little, little family. I also just remember going to like driving in this van to like through the, the cuts of Ibiza to like this rich dude's house. (laughs) <laughs> like the celebrities go to party and there's this guy just has this crazy sound system set up in there that's like off market and i was like crazy um nice well yeah make connections i think that's the whole point there is no matter where you go always always make friends uh introduce your friends to those friends and then good things happen and you also gotta ask too because like had i not asked i might have never got the opportunity because you know cl- closed mouths don't get fit so you got to ask, you got to be, you got to be willing to swallow your pride and not be too proud to ask for either a connection or a favor or just even tips. Right. For sure. All right. Cool. Well, I want to change gears a bit and uh, I'm trying to lead proxy. Lead, for the, those not watching on YouTube, we got a uh, Alan's dog, my, my dog I'm trying to play fetch. <laughs> here, hold uh, up. Give me a second here. Let her come out here. Um, cool. Yeah. So post Berkeley, I think you had a, a bit of a situation similar to post regular college where like, you're like, all right, I graduated with this music business degree. Now I got to get a job in music, but then it was a little bit more difficult. So can you describe the first couple of jobs that you, uh, that you had to take post college and what that felt like, you know, especially post spending all this money and energy, getting this degree in music. And then, uh, you know, what, what took place after that? Yeah, I came back from Spain and like when you're gone from the US, especially when you come back and live in the Bay Area, which 
I always say it's akin to living in the future. You've been out the game for a minute. You've been six months in the barrier. Things move rapidly. So when I came back, I didn't know nobody. Hell, the company's already sprung up. I didn't know what I was going to do. And I was very stubborn. I didn't want to move down to LA. I knew LA is the mecca of music business. I didn't want to go down there. Throughout my life, I didn't have the greatest experiences down there. So I'm like, I'm not really trying to do all that. I wanted to live in the Bay Area. And then we had just opened up the studio in Oakland for Plow Music. So I knew I really wanted to be adjacent to that or at least close. And it was tough. I remember the first three months, I think I was, you know, riding the couch at the studio and just trying to figure out a job or trying to make the DJ thing happen as a full-time thing. You know, I couldn't do it. It, it, it might've been a couple of different factors, you know, I didn't have many resources financially to make it work for me to be able to like try and really pursue the DJ thing. Um, it was also difficult because I didn't have very much support from my family at the time. They didn't really believe that this angle of music business still was very viable. Despite me having just gone to Spain to do it, they still weren't 100% confident about it. And it was just tough in the Bay Area. The scene is not exponentially big like it is in LA where you can just, you know, throw a rock and you hit someone who works in business. It's the Bay, you really got to seek it. And so I was having a hard time tried doing it for a couple months and eventually, you know, the bills came knocking. I started how to pay some bills, specifically student loans. So at that point I had to swallow my pride and, you know, you had been working at Square for a while there now. And you told me like, it's a good opportunity. It pays well. And, you know, it could lead to something bigger. So, you know, I applied and actually before that, I actually tried to work at Apple retail and, you know, I tried yeah, doing that. I was trying to bring up. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I went for it because at that point I got desperate. I needed to pay bills like these. Loan Sally Mae was starting to knock me like, yo, this shit is due. Like it's time to pay the, pay the toll. And so I tried to do a, a month of working at Apple Retail. That month ended up falling in the, in, of the, of the training ended up falling at the same time we had the Ibiza tour back in Spain. So I remember when we went, I had just applied right before we left. We went to the Ibiza tour and you know, we ended up, I am getting the offer letter to work at Square well, that's right, at yeah. the customer, customer service while we're in Ibiza. So we're not in Ibiza while we were in actually in Valencia. And that was sick. Cause I like locked that in and I was like, yeah, buddy, we're, we're out of, we're out of here now. And so like, it was cool. Cause I knew I had a job when I came back. So yeah, I ended up working at Square customer service with you and it sucked. That job was terrible. <laughs> I did not like that job. I mean, from a functional day-to-day -day thing, it wasn't great. Had good benefits. They fed us. The pay wasn't bad. Opportunity was also good. But, you know, you just I had to swallow my pride. You know, I had to get my chips up in order to do what I really wanted to do. So that's kind of what I did. I, I swallowed it. I, you know, I by day worked at Square. By night worked on the company and, and the DJ thing. Cool. And then uh, what, what led to the job at Empire? So what led to the job at Empire was is the fact that I continued to stay active in music. So even though I didn't work on the daily about it, we were running our events company. We we're trying to do events, club gigs and all that. We were still DJing very actively then. And it kind of kept my chops up. Still reading about music business every day. You know, I told people at Square, I worked, I, we, we try to do music stuff, invited them out to and I kept in contact with my program director at uh, Berkeley College of Music in Valencia, Spain. And so 
he saw that, you know, on social media, you know, you portray what you want people to see. So the only thing I was portraying on my socials was us DJing and doing stuff for Plum Music. It wasn't showing me grinding it out at Square customer <laughs> service. <Taking balls. laughs> so, you know, my program director saw I was still active. One day he was doing a field trip where he was bringing students from the, the Valencia program in Spain to the West Coast to talk to people who are in music business or tech companies. And he told me, he called, he hit me up one day on Facebook Messenger and he's like, yo, I'm coming out here to Oakland. There's like this little meetup at what's called the Zoo Lab here in, in Oakland. It's like the studio. I don't even know if it's still open. And he's like, yo, there's someone I want you to meet. I know you've been looking for a job out here in music business. Meet up with them and you can connect and just, you know, have another connection out there. So I'm like, all right, bet. So I, I pulled up to this event, not knowing what to expect. I get introduced to this guy named Joey, who ends up being the, the, the attorney for Empire. So Empire at the time is a very small independent distributor. And there's not much known around Empire because they, they're pretty early, pretty mysterious. And I, you know, my program director introduces me to Joey, this lawyer, and he starts talking to me about this position out of nowhere. Like he's pitching me a job and I'm like, wait, what? And at the end of the conversation, he's like, so does that sound like something you'd be interested in? And I'm like, whoa, that's crazy. Uh, yeah, I guess. He's like, yeah, send me your resume. And it was, I remember it was pretty wild. I don't know if you remember this, but I remember I, I called y'all and I left like a voice message, I think on, on iMessage. I'm like, yo, this dude just offered me like a job. And I did not expect I that. I'm like, this is crazy. <laughs> and I, yeah, I, I messaged the group chat about that. And I was like, this is crazy. And I think you guys might've brushed it off because it was like one of those things like, oh yeah, bro, sure, sure you did. Mm-hmm. So I sent them in my resume and, you know, lo and behold, a month later, I get a call from the CEO of Empire's assistant telling me he wants to do a call with me in a meeting. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm like, yo, well, this is crazy. No way. And I'm at work, like trying not to be suspicious of me taking a call for another job while I'm out on the job. And um, I'm like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, I take the, I take the, the interview and I do it a day where I can actually make it work. And I go take the interview it's real mysterious. They start asking me about things that I'm doing. And now here's the, here's the crutch part where I think is really important for people to understand um, who are trying to get into music business that don't necessarily work there every day. While I was working at Square, remember I was telling you we were doing everything we were doing at Plural Music. We were, we were trying to run the studio. We were trying to do our own events. We started to start the, the, our own little boutique label. All of those things, even though we weren't doing that at a high professional level, I was gaining experience on how this works. I was, I was forming an opinion of what, what, what is my perspective on the music business? And it kind of prepared me for that interview with the CEO of Empire. His name is Ghazi, for those who are unfamiliar. And when I was in that interview, he started asking me questions about what I do with the company. And I told him about this. And I'm pretty sure this is where I got the job was this. He asked me about what do I think of record labels and current deals? And I told him, you know, we had learned at UOP and, and at Berkeley about 360 deals. And I never thought that was fair. It never made sense to me. So I, would, I talked to him like, yo, these deals are crazy. I think they take too much. It makes no sense to me that an, that an artist should make less for their art than the, the, the label who's actually working it. They didn't even make it. And then I told him about what we were doing at Plural. Because remember, we had done those deals where we were doing 50-50 share on everything, whether it be streaming revenue and copyright ownership. And I told him about the deals we were doing at Plum Music. 
And I think really that part really kind of like captured him because that's exactly what Empire was pioneering at the time. Mm-hmm. They were doing non-exclusive distribution deals and label services deals that they were never taking more than 50% on any deals they were doing with artists. And so when I told him that, I think like he realized like, oh, that aligns exactly what we're doing. He gets it. He understands the spirit of what we're trying to do here. And I'm pretty sure that obviously with my Berkeley degree and my UOP degree, he felt confident enough to offer me the job. So like a month and a half later, I get a call. He offered me the position and he's like, yo, name, name your price. And I had to go ahead and do research and kind of negotiate with him for a salary for the position and, you know, locked it in. And the yeah, rest remember, is kind of history. I remember you there. got the offer letter while we were on a vacation in Hawaii. And I was like both happy for you and also like kind of annoyed because I was like, you're not gonna, we're not going to work together anymore. But I knew it was the <laughs> right thing. So what was the, what was the like, position we, we lived, that they hired for you? We lived together. We lived together. So like if 24-7 wasn't together. enough for you. <laughs> Yeah, 24-7 wasn't enough nah, for bro. you. <laughs> uh, uh, so what was the position that you got hired for? I remember, I think it was different than, you know, when you when you got there, you put in the work and it kind of quickly changed into a product manager, higher level, right? Yeah, so I originally got hired to do, so I, I speak Spanish natively, pretty fluently, and grew up around Latin music all my life. So I got hired to be essentially the label manager for, all our Spanish labels that we worked with. Then Empire was very much a distributor aggregator. So all their whole, uh, the whole business, um, the whole business plan and like business model was get as much content as we can from all these different types of music and pretty much make profit off to running that. And so essentially what my job was, I was supposed to answer all the messages and emails and set up releases for all the Spanish speaking labels. No one in the office at the time spoke Spanish. So I ended up being the guy who was supposed to be doing that. I got hired in May. I, May 15th was actually my start day. I remember this. May 15th, 2017. That was about 15 days after the release of a very significant song, the original version of this very significant song. And then come the top of June, a remix of this very significant song came out. And that song was the Justin Bieber remix of Despacito. And obviously, if anyone was not living in under a rock or in a cave and has heard this song. The song blew up. It became one of the biggest songs of all time. And not only was it the biggest song of all time, it ended up becoming the biggest song, Spanish speaking song of all time. And this, what it essentially did is it turned the Latin music market from being this niche. Oh, you know, it's whatever it's cute. La Macarena. Yeah. 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 To being this viable model of like, yo, you can make money off this shit. Cause Despacito, was number one on the US charts. It was beating songs by Drake, Lil Wayne, Nicki Minaj, the biggest artist at the time. Right. And everyone kind of then at that point realized like, oh snap, like this is something that could become worth our investment. And so what ended up happening when at Empire, we saw this, everyone kind of turned to me and be like, where's another? Yo, more? <laughs> let's, yeah. let's, in, let's invest way more into this Latin shit. And so they tasked me with starting looking for artists to sign. And I became kind of an A&R first and starting to look for artists to sign onto Empire that were in the Latin game. And then from there, it evolved to me not only being the A&R, but also being the product manager who was bringing the signed projects to market and marketing them and, you know, rollouts and everything like that. So that's really kind of evolved. And that, that happened 
just very quick. They have them in like a month of Despacito hitting the top of the charts. At that point, I was looking at like Bad Bunny, Anuel, Peruco, before these dudes were even signed anywhere, trying to reach out to them and get them signed on to Empire. You missed on Bad Bunny, huh? Bro, we missed on Bad Bunny, <laughs> but everyone missed on Bad Bunny. <laughs> cool. So, yeah, if you, uh, if you could maybe describe what you do, like, what is the role of a product manager at Empire? And, like, what are the key um, – well, yeah, let's just start there. Then we'll kind of dive into some things I think that DJs and any potential artists that are listening could, could pick up on. Yeah, so product manager job at most labels will look around, it looks something like this. I mean, it'll, it'll be called a couple of different titles. The titles aren't, aren't that different, but a product manager at Empire essentially takes the finished product from the studio of the music and brings it to the marketplace in the most successful way possible. So my job is to essentially be the quarterback of all the different people and like entities that need to touch the music in order to get it to iTunes and Apple Music and Spotify in a successful way. So back when we had physical CDs, a product manager essentially was the one who sent the music to the manufacturing company to make it into discs. They then got those discs and they try to pitch it to Rasputin or Tower Records to put it at the front of the store so you can get more sales and drive it. That obviously changes a little bit now when it's everything becomes digitized with digital downloads and streaming. So my job was to essentially get the music, get it uploaded to the system, make sure the distribution team is up distributing it in the proper way and, and getting the music pitched and marketed it in a successful way. So whether it be coming up with creative rollouts, making sure that every platform that has digital music is aware that this is coming letting them know why they should care about it and come and, and just making sure all these moving parts work well you know if we're going to create digital ads getting the graphic designer giving him direction of what's going to be created off the cover art of the song if we're talking about making a music video coordinating the music video production of that particular single if we need to get a remix done reaching out to whoever's doing a and r at the time it was me still and trying to figure out, you know, who's going to be what, doing what, and just kind of getting all these moving parts and put together so that we can reach this end goal of release day. That's what a product manager does. Man, I completely didn't put it together that uh, product managers would be like pitching Tower Records and like managing the physical creation <laughs> of the music. That's funny. Hey, um, that, that was back in the day. We don't necessarily need to, we don't do that as much anymore, but yeah. Right. So, okay, you also do some jobs as an A&R, and for any, uh, you know, aspiring artists or DJs who, you know, make music or trying to make music out there, what are, what are successful ways to pitch music to people? And then what are some things that are like red flags and things you shouldn't do when you're pitching um, A&Rs at labels? Yeah, so definitely, I think it's easier to start with the things not to do, for me at least. I've been at this for five years now, so I've seen everything under the sun. The worst thing you can do is probably, actually, no, this is the second one. The second worst thing you can do is send me a DM with only the link to your YouTube video, no context. <laughs> that doesn't do anything. That doesn't tell me anything who you are, what you're doing, why I should care about this particular project. The, the worst thing you can do is send me a pitch in a DM or an email or however have you, even in like a setting of like the restaurant 
and then feel entitled to me having to give you some sort of response or even sign you. And you'll be surprised how many artists feel they are entitled to not only my time, but also my resources and you know my connections. So the worst thing you can do as, a, as an artist is feel entitled to the A&R's time and their, that they should sign you because you think you're super dope. Nine times out of 10, 99 times out of 100, most aspiring artists don't have the things they need to warrant an, an A&R getting them really excited to get signed because they're just not aware. They think that the music is the only thing that needs to be dope. And even then they, they might not have enough people around them telling them like, is this really objectively dope or not? Um, so that's probably the worst thing is to have that entitled. If an, if, a, if an AR tells you no, not right now, or is like unable to answer, you need to cordially take that on the chin and, and keep it pushing. The worst right. thing you could do is be like, oh, you're not, you don't know what you're missing out. You're an idiot. I'm going to become the best, next biggest the thing. <laughs> yeah. It's like, bro, we probably see more vision than you have. So like, chill out. Now, a good pitch. What's a good pitch? A good pitch would be like someone hitting me up with an email or hitting me on DM being like, hey, my name is so-and-so. I come from here. You know, I make this type of music. I think I can become this type of person. I've done this, this, and this thing up to this point in my career. These are linked to my EPK or my one sheet. Let me know what you think. If you're interested, I'd love to hear back from you. You know, what that does is, is you're defining who you are. You're telling me why I should care. You're giving me resources to be able to quickly look at what you do instead of me having to go and search for it. You're giving me context of why it is your art is relevant. And then you're allowing me to become the person to decide, do I pursue this more or not? And you're being cordial about it. Very, being nice and, and cordial in the music industry goes a super long ways. And it's, it's, a, a, it's an unfortunate part because there's a lot of people who are not that in the music industry. So like, if you just do that alone, you'll stand out nice. just from that alone. And again, take it on the chin. If they tell you, no, not right now, then no, not right now. Use that as motivation to maybe up your game. If I was an artist, instead of being like, oh, okay, thank you for your time or being upset about it, I would follow up with questions like, okay, what do you normally look for an artist that you'd normally sign? Use that opportunity to have a dialogue with someone who has something that you may want from them and learn about what's going to take for you to maybe up your game, up your music, up your marketing to get you to a point where you do get signed. Nice. Okay. That makes a ton of sense. Um, so what can DJs learn from artists and the, the marketing process for music and maybe vice versa? I mean, I don't think there's a distinction between artists and DJs. I mean, I always think that a DJ is an artist. It's just in a different way. Right. Yeah. But, you know, my mindset as an A&R and working at Empire is always DJ centered. So I'm always thinking like, can you spin this track? How could this play in the club? Would this, what playlist kind of plays would this go into? Um, but I think that another part too is DJs can learn from um, recording artists more about like, what is the message or what is the feeling behind a song? I think as a DJ, I probably sometimes write off some music too quickly because I'm listening to it in my headphones and only thinking of like, how could I quickly spin this in the club or something like that? But some tracks don't always need to have that 
context. It's only one setting that music works in. Music works in multiple settings. So as a DJ, you also want to remember that there's multiple settings for a track's purpose. You know, an artist sometimes will think of a song, maybe they made this song as being the wedding walkout song. As a DJ who spins at clubs all the time, I might not immediately think of that. So I might not understand right. the value of that song. Um, the other part too is understanding like a regional context of a song. You know, if I'm a DJ from New York and I get pitched someone like Neff the Pharaoh, I may not understand that from the jump because I don't understand where Neff the Pharaoh comes from. I'm New York. If I play, you know, if I play something from Neff, it might not respond there, but go to go to a Bay Area club, go to Oakland, play at Somar and you play Neff the Pharaoh. That's just going to have the whole club lit. So understanding context of the, where the music's coming from is also important. And to do that, you need to understand who the artist is and what their significance is of where they're from. Most artists that have reached to a point where they have a, uh, you know, their music in a DJ pool have a pretty good enough reach. And then another one that's important that not only applies to DJs, but also A&Rs, I think is like never completely write off an artist. Always be respectful of artists. Even if you think they're not very good never write anyone off where you're big time. And when you're telling them like, I'm not, this guy doesn't even worth my attention. Like never think that. As soon as you think that, you're gonna miss on the next The Baby. You're gonna miss on the next Megan The Stallion. You're gonna miss on the next Cardi B because all those artists at one point were neglected by an entire industry. Right. And maybe because at that point their shit was not at a good enough par, but never write anyone off like that. That's the number one killer of any opportunity that will come down the road. I, I have never had an, I haven't had that personally happen to me where like someone really big blows up, but I've had opportunities where like, you know, I might've, I, I probably could have done a little bit better effort to keep that relationship going with this artist who later blew up. So like never write anyone off simply because you don't see them as big enough yet. Be respectful, thank them for like considering you to even consider their music and keep it pushing. You ain't gotta become best friends with them. But yeah, you also don't gotta be, you ain't gotta be a dick to them. Right. Cool. All right. Well, before we jump into kind of the ending, select the style section here. Any um, any pro tips from like the empire or just experience that you think, you know, the working DJ or or even like a producer DJ, um, could take away. I mean, yeah. I mean, I think as a, as DJs, you have a very unique and a very underrated position in the music industry. Uh, yes, playlists help break artists, MTV helps break artists, radio helps break artists, but the reality is tracks stick around and become cultural signif culturally significant because of DJ spinning them, whether it be at parties, whether it be at clubs. Recognizing where your position is in that whole kind of like machine, where your cog is in the machine, of the music industry is really important as a DJ. Understand you have value. If anyone writes you off just because you're a DJ and you don't necessarily produce, or maybe you don't record, brush that off the sweat because you do have value. You're an important piece of what, what this industry does. The other part too is, you know, try and meet as many people as you can, as many artists as you can. Keep in mind that any artist anytime can end up becoming the next big thing. And just keep, keep relationships open, you know? If an artist invites you out to the release party, Maybe it's not someone you particularly, you know, too fond of, or you don't listen to their stuff every day. If you can pull up, it's not going to hurt you to show up an hour, an hour and a half of your time. 
because who knows what's going to end up happening at that party. You might meet the artist that's super dope and that might put you on to their next release party. You might go there and then see that they're only playing off Spotify on the speakers. And you might be like, hey, next time, I don't know, artist X, let me spin. You're like, I'll spin for you. There's a big opportunity of being adjacent to the, to the people who are creating the art that we spin. And then the other part too, as, as DJs, is I would encourage them to put their own spin to music. I think um, our boy Cure does a good job of this. He's making his own edits, his own flips. They're not like transcendent remixes that are going to change the, the outlook of a song. But what it does is it gives you your own flavor to it. It lets you bring in your own kind of perspective onto the music that you're spinning all the time. And I think that's also important too. Invest some time on learning how to do a flip, even if it's simple as getting instrumental and putting a different acapella on it. I think that'll go a long ways as well. And then the other part too is coming up with creative ways to, to do things. I, I, what I see some DJs do that's really cool and creative is if your favorite artist, J. Cole puts out a project and you really mess with that, that, that album, you're like, yo, this shit is, this is super dope. Make a mix of it. Mix of the whole album. Put that up on SoundCloud and send it to J. Cole and see, like, see what he says. I don't know. That kind of stuff is really cool and that could end up opening a door for you. But like, you know, I think just kind of putting yourself out there is really important when it comes to the, the DJ thing. You can't just be only thinking about your one club gig. You can't just be at home and only doing Instagram stuff. You got to be out in, out in the trenches, really working it. For sure. Yeah, one thing you said that I'm kind of curious on your opinion of, I think is a really cool idea. It hasn't really culminated yet, but this concept of like, you know, there's there's playlisting that that Spotify's and the titles put out. They're like the, you know, the, the curated, whatever it is. I feel like it'd be a really cool thing. And in addition to doing like DJ mixes that you put up on SoundCloud, but if if DJs could eventually kind of treat streaming platforms as social media in a way where like they could curate playlists of their own, vibe uh and then and then market those as like a, a thing that they're keeping up on um, i think that, that could be a cool thing that, that could take place in the future if there's like a public profile aspect of the streaming platform so kind of curious what you think about that and in, in, uh, from your experience especially because you you know work really hard to get your songs on on the major platform playlist but do you think that there's a space for that kind of uh what's the word like a community grown playlist in that way if they could be grown yeah, absolutely. I think it's one of the most underutilized things that maybe even myself as a DJ probably don't do enough is creating your own list. I mean, in today's world, there's so much music. I think between Apple Music and, and Spotify, they get about half a million music releases a week. Imagine that. There's, there's 500,000 tracks being released a week globally, brand new. That's way too much music for any one human being or even oh, one company to parse through. Right. So as a DJ, not only do we spin music in live settings, but like, yeah, like you said, you can create your own taste and your own playlists that are, you know, curated to whatever you want it to be, whether it be a funk playlist, a disco house playlist, whatever, and do that. I think it's a good way to also stand out. There's a couple of people that do it. That's really, really cool about it. They, you know, they create their own playlist, they market it, they brand their playlist. Maybe you do a party around this particular playlist brand. Um, that's a cool way to kind of stand out and kind of make, leave your own, leave your own imprint in, in, in the community because there are people and especially here in Oakland I think it's DJ Shellheart for a while she had done that so much enough that Apple tapped her to like uh, be a guest curator for one of their playlists on the Bay Area before so like these you know being come as DJs were tastemakers so becoming known as that as a as a as a 
prolific tastemaker, it can be beneficial, not just because you get booked for gigs, but like you can end up getting job at fucking Spotify, managing a playlist or right. a guest curator for like, I don't know, the Zumba, making the next Zumba playlist or something like that. Like yeah. it, it's, it's worth, it's worth investing into that as well. If you're trying to like diversify how you do things as a DJ and not just only being about DJ mixes or edits. Right. Especially if you're like, trying to get a corporate gig or something you want to give them your taste or whatever you could be like check out my playlist but all right cool glad to know that's a a good idea i'm I'm still figuring out the best way to uh, do it myself but hopefully the the platforms will come out with some easier tools for us to uh to make that happen all right so i want to jump into kind of the final section here i do on every podcast called the select a style we talk about music taste and then library organization my favorite topics to talk about so and the music taste side, how would you describe yourself or how would you describe your DJ style? And then secondly, uh, what do you listen to when no one is listening? Um, I always describe my style as a mix of, I mean, now it's probably a mix of house, Latin and hip hop, which to a lot of people may not make sense. But like when you listen to it, it does make sense because a lot of these beats kind of like work together. I'm definitely a person who does a lot of extreme tempo changes. Um, I tend to do that a lot. I'll go from 125 to 135 down to 70 to even 86 to something like that. Pretty easy. I try and find very creative ways to do those tempo changes to make people go, ah, like aha moments. Um, And I think what my main thing is I really like to do is find music that sounds familiar but is new to the person. So for example, like there's this, there's a song by Mike Towers, this is like a donor artist from Puerto Rico called Girl. He used a sample from, um, uh, from, from Diddy, from Bad Boys Records. And it's very recognizable. It's I Need Your Love. Oh, I, I Need a Girl. It's a, I Need Your Girl sample. And he changes it. He used that first kind of like very iconic kind of like, uh, part melody of the song and he switches it to a reggaeton beat so i like to like get get really like noticeable or recognizable sounds and then flip it and switch it to like something that people haven't heard it in that sense so like whether it be a reggaeton version of 21 questions or maybe it's like the trap version of i don't know rolling in the deep by adele i've never done that but i'm just i'm spitballing here but like yeah doing stuff like that is kind of like what i really like to do is bringing familiar sounds but give them a, a new spin that's that's probably my my taste and then that kind of leads me to how I organize my libraries when I create show playlists or something like that I, I tend to spend like an hour or two just freestyling a set with the playlist I made for that particular show and seeing what ends up fitting and what I try and do is I find I try and find triplets of songs three songs that work well together and figuring out how those three songs best can be mixed together and then I create my playlist with those triplets. So if I know a song A, B, and C work well together, that's that's three songs that I know will be in that playlist. So anytime I'm at the club and it seems to be like the appropriate time to whip out song A, B, or C, I know I can mix into immediately two or three songs after that. And that's kind of how I build it. And what it does is it also lets you be able to practice, but be prepared for any spontaneous situation. So like if you practice that triplet enough, it's going to become second nature to you. So you can whip it out anytime in the middle of any set. So essentially you end up like building your sets through triplets 
And so like, instead of having to think, spending a lot of time with Serato face trying to find like, what's the next song, what's the next song? You already know at least the next two songs after, after that one song that has a triplet ac- attached to it. So you can already get into that vibe. That's kind of how I build my playlist. And then I build everything by vibes. I don't do the BPM stuff right, at all, really at all. I, everything is vibes. So like I have plays called like funk vibes or funk house. I have ones that are like fun house for kids. I have stuff that it's like, um, I don't know. Like, I want to give some context to that. <laughs> Why you have a fun house? Oh yeah. Kids. Oh, fun house for kids. I, I had to like DJ this like kid music festival in, in, um, in Spain. So I had to like make sure yeah, I, had, I get it. you know, friendly, all the kid vibes, parent friendly music. Yeah. Like, I had like remixes of like under the under the sea type shit and then um yeah i do like i don't know like uh i'll name things after clubs because i know clubs have specific vibes i'll be like hawthorne opener or i'll do like opener hip-hop heavy or opener latin heavy stuff like that it's kind of how i organize my library um so you'll in, in my place you'll see a medley of different genres unless or uh, genres and, and and bpms unless it's a genre specific playlist then you tend to see a lot of the same bpms but yeah i I do everything by vibes which i know doesn't work for everyone because some people like to be a little bit more technical and like go like i need something at 108 to 110 right now i don't really operate that way i I go by vibes and by sound yeah i feel you i've been doing i do some like location i have an sf and then sd and then in there like the vars i play then like the specific dates they'll be playing all like that's where i'll just dump all my new stuff that i want to like rinse out and then i can always go back to have like those venues playlists and then i kind of have like a generic bar like hip-hop house whatever vibe so that's kind of the vibe i've been doing Mm -hmm. right now but i'm always trying to change and update based on what i talk to people about cool man well thank you again so much for coming on um soul seven here again once again on the business djing where can people find you where should they follow you what are you working on that you want to let people know about? Yeah, I mean, you guys can find me on all social media. It's it's Soul Seven Beats, um, pretty much on everywhere, but SoundCloud. It's the Soul Seven Music. The SoundCloud strikes took down my Soul Seven Beats channel, but you can find my music on SoundCloud. I'm on Mixcloud. I'm on YouTube. I'm on Audius. Definitely check out Audius. I put exclusive shit on Audius all the time. And um, if you really want to know what's coming up for me. I'm working on a new mixtape. It's going to be kind of like Latin house centered. Got really inspired on a trip to Puerto Rico. So that'll be coming within the next month, ready for, you know, the summer to come through. And then, you know, last but not least, I'm working on a SoundCloud curator page. It's actually going to have a handful of playlists that people can go in and tap in. It's going to be called Crate Gems. So if you want to get an early taste of it, you can find it on SoundCloud. It's called Crate Gems. So C-R-A-T-E and gems and check that out you can get a little taste of what i like cool yeah we'll throw it in the show notes as well all right bro thank you so much for coming on love you and uh we'll chat again soon